I would like to give you a round of applause. And I want you to clap for each other as well. Because that is you, and that is your generosity. That, that has nothing to do with Bethel handing out 20 bucks. That has everything to do with the fact that all of you are generous people. And we thank you for your generosity. We thank you for your heart to serve our community and those that you love and those that might have just needed a helping hand. And that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for partnering with us to that end. Well, it's a privilege for me to join you here again this morning. It's a privilege for me to have the opportunity to open up God's Word with you. For those of you who uh, maybe don't know me or are newer to our HB campus, my name is Stephen Ganchow and I serve as our pastor of counseling. And I think the first thing after thank you that I would like to say, as I've been here now a number of times over the last couple of months, I am so thrilled that the number of vests that get worn in this building <laughs> have dramatically gone up. There are, there are a lot of vests here, and I, for one, am just stoked. <laughs> because I, I, I know a thing about a vest or so. This morning, we are launching into our Christmas series here at Bethel Church. We're doing that at all of our campuses. It's called Finding or Searching for Christ in Christmas. And we did that because we think that there is a lot that we, we know about Christmas. There's a lot that we think about Jesus and the Christmas season. But I would submit to you that a lot of it, we, we kind of know up here, but we don't fully grasp the entirety of out here. We've got the high strokes in our head, but what ends up happening when we get to know something really well is some of those details begin to get a little bit fuzzy, and I would submit to you some of those, in de those details are very, very important. What I will submit to you this morning is that there is far more to what we call the Christmas story than meets the eye. And I want to develop that out for you just a little bit. So I'm going to promise you on the front side of our time together in God's Word today, this will be an unusual sermon. And I'm going to approach God's Word a little bit differently than I think I would usually do that. This won't be just another Christmas sermon, and I, I would submit to you, I don't even think this will be just another Christmas series either. We're going to develop something for you that I'll tease out in just a few minutes. I do want to reiterate what Pastor Scott said, though, a little while ago, our Christmas Eve services are an intricate part of this series. Every single Sunday is going to build on itself, and we're going to build all the way to Christmas Eve and the 26th as well with one idea flowing through them. We want you to know God at every single point in the Christmas story. So everything I share with you today will be expanded on next Sunday, building the Christmas Eve. So we cannot encourage you enough to come. 1.30 and 3 o'clock, and then I checked because I, I was curious, quite frankly. On the 26th, the one service that we have is at 9 a.m., so join us on the 26th here at 9 a.m. as well. What I'd like to do this morning is open up our sermon with kind of an eclectic story. It's really more of a story about a story, and it is not the Christmas story. But I think it will, in a very unique way, set up how it is that I want to approach the Bible. So my outline is going to be basically this. I'm going to tell you this odd story. I'm going to build the case for what I want us to think about today. I'm going to build it for us together. And then we're going to get into the Bible 
at about the halfway point or so with a great level of intention. So again, a bit of a unique take on our time together today. The story that I referred to starts in 1977. In 1977, the cinematic epic Star Wars, yes, Star Wars, was released in theaters and was something of a global phenomenon. In fact, it was an instant hit, and in the first few days that Star Wars came out, it made $1.5 million. By the way, with inflation, that is 450 some odd million dollars by our standards today. And it amassed, over the time that it was in theaters, $775 million worldwide. I did the math. The number by today's standards, it made me a little sick. It was a massive number for 1977. So popular was this story about an adopted farm boy who was trained by his father's best friend to be a freedom fighter against an evil and oppressive empire that, unshockingly, a sequel was quickly greenlit. But something else happened, something of infinite importance to the story itself. The original movie, do you know what happened? It was retitled. The original movie was retitled Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. It was not originally titled that way. And what we know then is that creator George Lucas, he shared that he had a somewhat undefined but grand plan that was encompassing far more than he was willing to share at first, largely because he didn't know if the movie was going to be as much of a global phenomenon as he hoped that it would be. As we know, it turned out that it was. In the hopes, though, of Star Wars' success, the audience was introduced into this expanding galaxy of characters that were ripe for further explora exploration, literally in every single direction. Contained within this movie are some of the single most important pop culture um, lines of dialogue that I submit to you. You yourself say. You don't realize you quote Star Wars. And that's a beautiful thing, by the way. But Star Wars has some of the most poignant lines of dialogue. I could, I could, some of you know I'm a mild fan of Star Wars. I could talk for the next 45 minutes about it and tie the gospel in. But I won't. But I do think that there is something very important in here that highlights for us how it is we need to approach the Christmas story. Some of those really important lines in Star Wars Episode Four are probably not the ones we all commonly think of, but they are of infinite value to that series. Let me share a couple of them with you. And I would guess they're not the ones that stood out to you. Very early on in the movie, between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker, they're having a conversation in Obi-Wan's house. And Luke Skywalker, as Obi-Wan's telling him a story, asks Obi-Wan, you fought in, in the Clone Wars? And the audience is like, the what? Later on, just, just a few minutes after that, Obi-Wan goes on to describe this long-dead um, organization of freedom fighters called Jedi Knights. And he alludes to this time in the past called the Old Republic. And the audience is like, is there a new republic? Like, is, is there a new time that we're in right now? Later on in the movie, when you're introduced to the villain, Darth Vader, and Obi-Wan and Vader are doing battle, Vader makes this very important point. He says... I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circuit is now complete. When I left you, I was but a learner. 
Now I am the master. And Obi-Wan is like, and, and the audience is like, so these guys know each other. There's a lot more happening here than meets the eye. And if you've seen the original Star Wars movie and you've paid attention to it at all, maybe those lines you're kind of familiar with, you know that they're in there, you know that they mean something, and if you've seen the whole trilogy, you know certainly that they are attached to a lot. But we don't really pay attention to those lines at all. And yet, fascinatingly, now 44 years later, Star Wars spans 12 movies, hundreds of novels, multiple video games, hours of streaming content. And do you know what it's built on? Lines just like that. These hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours are built on things that are seemingly miss missable. You don't, you don't need them. It's, they're helpful little bits of information, but we look at those lines and they weren't anything special at the time, and yet the entirety of the Star Wars universe literally hinges on lines like that. Some of you might see where I'm going. I would submit to you that this very much relates to the idea of the Christmas story. It very much relates to our idea of how it is that we need to approach our faith. I would ask that you consider the book of Isaiah. We've already somewhat alluded to the book of Isaiah this morning, but I want to read to you Isaiah chapter 9 and just walk through a couple of verses for you to kind of continue to build on this idea. Starting in verse 1, it says, But there will be no gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt in the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when, the, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now here's the part we know. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now we know that's Christmassy, right? We read it a little while ago, but... Let's ask an honest question. How many of you know that portion of scripture because of the song? Wonderful, counselor, right? Unto us a child is born. It's a Christmas hymn. How many of us are familiar with the fact that that came from the Old Testament at all? And how often do we go to the Old Testament to start to understand the significance of the story of Christmas? Friends, for many of us, the vast majority of our Bible reading and Bible knowledge comes from the New Testament. We end up starting in the middle of the story. And it's places like this passage from Isaiah that are sadly requisitioned to Christmas time 
and a Christmas song. And yet they are much, much more. But unfortunately, we only settle for the main things. We settle for the main beats. We only settle at times for what it is that we need to know. What does that mean? It means we know the story of Jesus, right? We know the Gospels. We understand then that Jesus trained 12 men and others had a bunch of followers and that following Jesus' ascension into heaven, we know then that Jesus sent people out in the book of Acts and that throughout the book of Acts, we have the story of the gospel spreading to the known world and that most of the New Testament, Romans and Colossians and Philippians and a number of the other books are all designed to encourage the churches that got planted and to mature the faith of people. And we loosely understand all of those things. And too often we find, that's okay. We, we know that. But we miss along the way that the New Testament is infused with the old. How often are you reading and going through this and you come across a passage where it's like, oh, that's indented a little bit. Oh, it must be referring to something. And then you just keep going in your reading. These are very, very important details. The Christmas story, for example, is filled with a rich illusion and illustration to the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. The way the angels came has direct significance from the Old Testament. What the shepherds did and why shepherds were chosen at all has direct significance to the Old Testament. Why the eventual wise men responded the way that they do, all of these things are steeped in significant history. Here's maybe an example that relates back to my opening analogy. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, so Jesus had this habit of going in on the Sabbath day and teaching in the synagogue early in his ministry. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, that as was Jesus' custom, he went in on the Sabbath and he was given the scroll to read. He read Isaiah 61 and 62, which uh, 61, he read Isaiah 61, excuse me, verses 1 and 2, which is a messianic prophecy. He reads those two verses, stops, and then just drops this bomb on everyone that's listening. He says, today, this scripture from hundreds of years ago has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he sat down. And all the people in the synagogue were like, what? Are you, are you? Because Jesus had just taken on the messianic prophecy. He literally claimed in that moment to be the fulfillment of scripture. The people in the synagogue were so overwhelmed by what Jesus did, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Like, like Wiley Coyote, throw him off a cliff. These are important things. Jesus literally read history about himself. Just a few lines of dialogue from the Old Testament. Most people reading Luke don't even realize Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61. Yet again, another significant example steeped in history with massive significance. Later on in Jesus' earthly ministry, he would claim to be the fulfillment of the law. But if you have not read the Old Testament, you're kind of like, what law? When, when I meet with new believers or I'm trying to help someone grow in their faith, one of the things that I will often do is I will have them read Luke and Acts back to back because Luke and Acts are both written by Luke and they make a great self-contained story. But if that is all you have, you are missing an incredible amount 
of detail. You're going to miss Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, we have the Bible literally showing us that Jesus was going to teach biblical history as it concerns himself. Listen to what Luke 24, 27 says. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus values the Old Testament. Jesus repeatedly throughout his ministry shows people you need to know this. The Old Testament is very, very significant. The thing about Luke and Acts, it's a great self-contained story. It's why I have people read it. But much like Star Wars A New Hope, you miss incredible, vast amounts of information. You are left with untold questions that need answers. Luke and Acts cannot make the sum total of our faith up. I've pastored now for a long time. And one of the things that I have seen, and it's one of the reasons that I'm approaching our subject today this way, I have seen that too often our faith starts with Christmas and ends with Easter. We look at the Old Testament a lot like that line of dialogue related to the Old Republic where we can see these big, interesting, even significant things happened in yesteryear, things Jesus even claims to be true about himself, but we have no context or understanding, maybe not even a great desire to know the fullest extent of what becomes the Christmas story. Friends, you must understand, without the Old Testament, there is no Christmas story. The Old Testament is of overwhelming importance, but but what happens is we settle. We're familiar with things. We know the Genesis account, right? We know the flood. We know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know about Moses and the Ten Commandments. For goodness sake, we all know who Charlton Heston is, don't we? We know the high notes of the Bible. We understand King David and his son Solomon, the wisest man in human history. But if you are honest with yourself, does it get a little fuzzy after Solomon? You get into those minor prophets, and it's like, yeah, it ends with Malachi. And then I've got Matthew. I've got the New Testament. I know Matthew. It's back to the stuff we know, back to the stuff we we are familiar with. Paul David Tripp says this, when we are familiar with things, we tend not to celebrate them as we once did. Familiarity tends to rob us of wonder. And here's what's important about this. What has captured the wonder of our hearts will control the way we live. Familiarity often means that what is very important may no longer exercise important influence over us in the way that it should. These Old Testament events are important, but many struggle to grasp how they relate to the larger story. They're left wondering how it relates to the gospel and changing faith in their lives. And sometimes for us, maybe if you're a new believer, it begs the question, why on earth did God give us the New Testament or the Old Testament the way that he did? Why did he put it in there in that way? Why tell the story this way? Obviously, it's a part of something, but I would submit to you that is what we need to know this Christmas season. We need to find the Christ in Christmas, not just during and after the life of Jesus, but we need to know, quite frankly, what on earth was Jesus doing before he was a baby? Every verse in the Bible, whether directly or indirectly, builds towards or builds from the story 
of Jesus, but it is not always easy to see Jesus in every detail of every story. It can be challenging in the midst of a long history of floods and kings and prophets to see that it all leads to a manger. So how does this mesh together? How do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? There's actually a word for this, and it's an important word. I'm going to share it with you now. It's called a Christology. A Christology is the theological discipline that studies the life, character, and work of Jesus specifically. Now, I'm going to say something for those of you that might be newer Christians in the room that might be like, oh, uh, I didn't think about that. But, and for those of you that have uh, been believers for a long time, what I want is to develop this for you in a very mature way. I want you to have a mature Christology. Christology includes all of the things Jesus did before he was born. Now, it might be like, what do you mean all the things Jesus did before he was born? Obviously, we know Jesus' life includes his birth and everything after, but Jesus did a bunch of stuff before he was born? Yes. Like I said, this will not just be another Christmas sermon this morning. What we want is for you to have a very comprehensive understanding of the God you serve. We want you to have a comprehensive understanding of this man that saved you. We want you to know the Jesus of Hebrews 13.8. What does Hebrews 13.8 says? It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But that means yesterday has overwhelming significance. So that is what we are going to do today. We are going to develop the Christology of who Jesus was before he was born as a baby. We're going to ask and answer the question, what was Jesus doing before the incarnation? All of that to ask that question. So if you would, open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. And we're going to read John's account of the Christmas story. It's going to be on the screen as well. But I will note to you that what we are about to read is the whole of what John says about Christmas. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the light, excuse me, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now that is a very dense passage of theology. And it was not very Christmassy, was it? And yet I would submit to you that the beginning that is being spoken about here, the beginning that John is referring to is not the beginning of the Christmas story, but it was the beginning that made the Christmas story possible. If we're going to understand this at great length, we need to know the beginning that John is referring to here in John 1.1. So in the beginning, this phrase is referring to the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. Briefly, it says, and most of you may know this, it says, in the beginning, same exact phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Without getting too deep in the weeds of ancient Greek, the Greek word used here for beginning is origin. 
So what John is doing is telling an origin story. What this means for us is John is referring to the beginning of time. John John himself is referring to Genesis 1-1. He's talking about creation itself. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. Well, who or what is the Word? John 1, 1 through 4 says that the Word is with God. He says the Word is God, was at the beginning, meaning creation with God, and that creation itself was made through the Word. John 1, 2, and 3 also assigns the Word a gender, Him. Finally, the Word holds life and light, referring very specifically to the physical, both physical and eternal spiritual life together. The Word touches Every single one of those things. Now, this may seem self-evident, but we do need to know in great detail who is the Word and why was that phrase chosen. The word in Greek for word is logos. And logos has a number of very specific meanings. Ordinarily, it refers to the spoken word, a thought, very logical in nature, and deeply personal communication. It's referring here to a form of very personal communication as well. Personal communication, verbal tradition, it meant a lot in in that day and age. In fact, many components of the Old Testament had been passed down via verbal tradition from parents to children. We have entire sections of Old Testament scripture that talk about this. Let the word of God be as frontlets on your eyes. Put it on the posts of your home. When you rise up, when you lay down, be looking and knowing the law of God, right? We know these things. The verbal tradition, having the law of the Lord in front of people all the time was of high significance. Israel would have valued this. In fact, D.A. Carson and Andreas Kostenberger, both tremendous Bible scholars in their very, very thick commentaries on the book of John, they exhaust page after page after page after page just highlighting the significance of the word logos. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, I commend both of those commentaries to you. It is actually quite fascinating to read. For our purposes, though, I want to bring this together and summarize why it's so important to help answer our question about what Jesus was doing before he was born. When we bring what John says together about the Word, that in the beginning and all the things that the Word did and all the places that the Word has been, we can logically deduce that the Word, that the word is Jesus. And that may seem self-evident to an extent, but there is a reason John did what he did the way he did it. The original audience of the Apostle John would have heard a few more things based on the language that he chose. And again, Carson and Kostenberger exhaust paragraphs on this. The original audience would have heard John combining deeply personal language with something else they would have been very familiar with. John was combining a modern word with their knowledge of the Old Testament because the phrase, the word, had been used throughout biblical history. It had been conveyed down for generation after generation. You find allegory to the word in um, Psalm 33.6. You find it in Proverbs 8.22-31. You find the idea woven throughout a variety of different Old Testament literature, all of which the Jews would be familiar with. So here John is building the case that not just, not, was not just the word at the beginning of time, 
but he is here, present right now, and woven throughout Old Testament history, this would have gotten the Jews thinking. Their mind would begin to run based on this. Israel would have been very familiar with everything that John was drawing from and pulling together. John, in calling Jesus the Word, is drawing on deeply personal language and scripture to make a culture-shattering statement to his Old Testament audience. He was saying that not only is Jesus Yahweh, that Jesus was pre-existent with Yahweh. That Jesus is the Messiah and he was existent with God at the beginning of time. And this would have been very powerful because Israel, they've been waiting for the Messiah since Genesis chapter 3. Israel would have been very, very comfortable with the pre-existence of God. They'd be very comfortable with the language of creation and all of these things. What they would not be comfortable with is the idea of a pantheon. They would not be comfortable with the idea that there is more than one God. And what the original audience, what, what the Jews consistently rebelled against in the early days was the idea of the Trinity. The idea that Jesus existed with God, that the Godhead is in fact a trinity of beings. Now, if you've been here at HP for a little while and you've heard me preach a few times, you'll remember that back in our Bottom Lines of the Bible series, I preached here one day about the aseity of Christ. Do you remember that? We talked about who the trinity is, and we outlined in great detail the functions of the Godhead. We talked about how God the Father rules and reigns from the throne of heaven, is sovereign over all. We talked about how then the Son, Jesus, or as John calls him, the Word, is the one that intercedes on behalf of humanity, and he always has. That's why we need to know the Old Testament. And then we have the Holy Spirit, our helper and counselor, the portion that God sends to us when we get saved and we surrender our lives to Christ. What John is doing here in chapter 1 is saying that Jesus was a pre-existent portion of the Trinity, that he has always been there, and that Israel's resistance to the idea of the Trinity is in error. This was a definitive statement of Trinitarian theology to an audience who did not want to hear it. This is important, too, because there are entire wings of theology that to this day teach that Jesus was a created being, that God created Jesus to do the cross work and that Jesus was not always the fullness of God's plan. Now, these are cool theological tidbits, right? Fun and helpful things to know, but they still don't quite answer the question with as much detail as I would like for us to know. Understanding that John is making a Trinitarian statement, though, helps us understand what's coming next. John teaches something else very important about Jesus. John makes the case that it was Jesus himself who was not just present at creation, but was the agent of creation. What does that mean? Consider what John says in 1 verse 3. He says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the Word, is the Creator. When the Bible says God spoke, Jesus was the living Word used by the Father to make something out of nothing. What was Jesus doing before he came to earth as a baby? Jesus was creating. 
In Genesis 1, verses 3, 6, and 9, it says, let there be light, let there be water, let there be sky. God was dictating, Jesus was the one that was creating. Listen to what other Bible authors have to say. Consider Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Colossians 1.16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. How about a third author, the writer of Hebrews? It says in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son who he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then let's punch this point one more time. We're going to go back to John. In John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All of this is infinitely significant. And in and of itself, quite frankly, a sermon series on the Trinity. But I think we need to understand exactly what the Old Testament is telling us about Christ and Christmas before Jesus was born. Well, it was certainly a joint effort with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all involved When the Bible says God spoke, it was Jesus as the word that was the specific agent that made you. It was Jesus that made everything. God spoke the decree, but from John 1, 3, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 and elsewhere, it was Jesus who did this. Which means, as a natural extension of this theological logic, Jesus has always existed. It means that Jesus has always been God. It means that God did not create Jesus just to go to the cross. Jesus was not God's plan B. He has always been the plan. And that means something about Jesus too. It means when Jesus created, he created with you and me in mind. When Jesus did what he did, when Jesus built the story Your story is a part of God's story. When Jesus created an eternity past, it wasn't just about the heaven and the earth and Adam and Eve. It wasn't just about the Old Testament because all of those things build to what? It builds to the Christmas story. The Christmas story is a part of the redemption story, right? Everything that happens in the Old Testament, that is somewhat your story. And we must understand the significance of this for what that means. Consider what Paul David Tripp has to say again about this. He says, what makes this story vital to know and understand is it is not just a well-crafted fantasy. The thing that should make you stop in your tracks, activate your heart and mind, and fall on your knees is that this story is real. It took place in real time, in real locations, with real people. 
All human history was marching to the specific point in time when this story would unfold. And the implications of the events of this story reach to everyone that has ever lived. The Christmas story is the story of stories. The Christmas story is Jesus' story. The Christmas story is your story. God loves us. And he loves us so much that every single detail was planned. Theologian Douglas McReady summarized this way very well. He says, The doctrine of Christ's existence prevents us from transforming Christianity into a religion of human achievement. To a world that asks whether God cares about us or whether he even exists, the doctrine of Christ's pre-existence reminds us that God loves his creatures so much that he didn't just send a representative to help us, he came himself. And he planned every single step along the way. He planned every moment of your life, every moment of my life, every good thing, every heartache, every sorrow, every death, every joy, every promotion, everything built by Jesus for you, for me, so that one day we can enjoy eternal peace in heaven with him. God used the Old Testament to build the Christmas story and he used the Christmas story to build the cross which gives us the gospel. Now, I think we know this. We conceptually understand it. But it is one of those things that unless we objectively step back and take the time to appreciate all of what God has done, we end up missing overwhelmingly important details to what amounts to very much our story. It is too easy to treat these deep things of the Bible like throwaway lines from a movie. The big answer to the question, what was Jesus doing before he was born? He created you. He created every beat of your story. And he will make sure you get to the end of your story as well. There is nothing in your life happening today that God will not help you through. Now in the brief few moments we have left, there are a few other things that Jesus did before he was born. A couple of other things that are just worth our time and attention. These things are called Christophanies. Christophanies are times where Jesus interjected himself in the human story. We find one with Abraham, where a visitor came to Abraham before Sodom's destruction. We have Jacob wrestling with an adversary who he later named as God. We have Joshua meeting the commander of the Lord's army before the battle of Jericho. We have some that speculate that the fourth man in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel was Jesus. One real fascinating one is actually in the book of Jude, second to last book of the Bible. In the book of Jude, verse 5, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. The Bible itself says that it was Jesus himself that was involved in saving Israel back in Egypt. If, you have, if you've got the ESV Bible, you're going to find that in there. A couple of other versions of the Bible say the Lord, but ESV and a number of others ascribe that it was Jesus himself. Why share those other little details with you? Because Jesus wasn't just active at creation. 
Jesus was involved in every bit of the story along the way. So many times where Israel is about to be destroyed, Jesus himself shows up. And I would submit to you, friends, that is what's going to happen in our lives as well. If you know Jesus as your Savior, when you are in the midst of heartache and sorrow, when you are in the midst of joys, Jesus will show up in your life because he's never left you to begin with. We don't feel that all the time, though, do we? My encouragement to you today is to pursue a most full understanding of who Jesus is. Because Israel, time and again, was at death's door. We see that in the Old Testament, time and again. And Jesus was there and delivered them. Jesus was there and endured them. Jesus was there and brought them out of exile. Jesus was there. And he always will be. Three final points. Not a lot, I promise. But as the counseling pastor, I cannot send you away without something that will help you sharpen your faith. The first is this. Pursue the fullness of God's character. Know the whole Christmas story. Study the Old Testament. Don't just read this story again, but look for the movement of the Holy Spirit. Look for what the fullness of God's character is doing. Number two, don't avoid the Old Testament. In fact, go read Isaiah 61. Go read Isaiah 9. Wrestle with that first half of the text where I was reading it and you're like, what is he talking about? Go and understand when the Bible talks about Jesus in the Old Testament. And three, remember. Remember that the pre-incarnate Jesus planned for you. That the pre-incarnate Jesus created all time and space with your story in mind. And that there is nothing too big, nothing too small, and nothing out of his sight. Remember that in God planning the Christmas story, he planned your story.